Welcome to What Christians Should Know, hosted by Dr. Elijah Sadoffel. This podcast equips you with clarity and meaningful answers about God, the Bible, and your Christian life. Now, here's Dr. Sadoffel. Today in our Bible study, we will discuss Romans chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. We will in fact focus most of our attention on verses 2 and 3, seeing as how we discussed verse 1 at length in the prior episode. Now before we proceed, let us all make sure we are aware of the context. In chapter 1, the Apostle Paul tells us that the wrath of God is revealed against all sin and then explains how it is revealed against the Gentiles without the law. Subsequently, at the beginning of chapter 2, Paul sets forth the principles that govern God's judgment. That is, God judges according to the truth and according to what a person does, not who they are. This text is biting because Paul writes that contrary to then popular belief, God will not treat the sins of the Jews in a special way. This is because God is impartial. In short, Paul is speaking to the Jew in chapter 2 and explains that regardless if you are a Jew, regardless if you have the law, and regardless if you have the circumcision, you still stand guilty before the holy, divine, perfect, and impartial judge of the entire universe. The outwardly moral religious person may think he is okay and is acceptable to God, but only because he is judging from his own perverted perspective. Human judgment is never according to the truth, even at its best. Hence, the secret hope of the Jew in antiquity was that God would judge by some rule other than the truth. We tend to have our favorites when we judge, but God does not. Therefore, he will not lower his standard of perfect righteousness. Even more, God is righteousness in and of himself, so he cannot deny his eternal law. See John 7.24 and Luke 11.39. And God never judges based upon what is outward. He judges based on the heart as well. Who can therefore stand before the righteous judge of all the earth and build a case upon a solid foundation? No one can. This is why all men, even the Jew, need a Savior. Now let us be mindful that nowhere in this epistle does Paul ever deny that the Jews do have a special relationship with God. After all, there was a biological 12-tribe nation of Israel, there was the revelation of the law to the Hebrews at Sinai, and there was the Old Testament covenant of circumcision. But all of this never supplants God impartiality, nor does it shield the Jew from the consequences of his own sins. In fact, the reality that the Apostle Paul is the one being used to communicate the impartiality of God means much, because if God were to be partial to anyone, it would be Paul. Why do I say that? Because based upon who he was in the flesh, Paul had more reasons to boast than most people. Yet, even he counted it all as rubbish compared to knowing Christ. This is the big idea of what Paul communicates in Philippians chapter 3, verses 2 to 8. That text says, Beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, because of the false circumcision. For we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh. 
If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ. The point is that neither was God biased in favor of Paul, nor did Paul expect God to be impressed by who he was in the flesh, because who he was in the flesh was a gift of God. Accordingly, God is never biased because he judges based on the truth. An unbiased God never chooses sides when it comes to dealing with sin and the guilt of the people who commit it. Moreover, when we now make a broad connection to the rest of the New Testament, it is clear that you either bear the penalty for your own guilt in hell or trust in the atonement of Jesus Christ, who enables a man to stand before God not guilty but justified. Let us now dive into our theme verses. Romans 2 verses 1 to 3 says, Therefore you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment, for in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge, practice the same things. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. But do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? So Romans 2.1 tells us that the self-righteous condemn themselves. They condemn themselves because they look at someone else and say, that's wrong, but the accuser is doing the same things as the accused. This means everyone is at fault and is left without excuse. Properly defined, the word in Greek that is translated without excuse is a compound word that literally means without rationale or without any justified defense or argument. This person is therefore inexcusable because they cannot offer any genuine argument. Their argument has no foundation to support it. We live in a culture where people make excuses all the time. This is a result of living in a world corrupted by sin, in that what people call excuses are in actuality explanations for failure or rationalizations for sin. Excuse making first began in the Garden of Eden. I will paraphrase, but in Genesis 3, God asked Adam, why did you sin? And his response was an excuse. He said, the woman made me do it. God then asked Eve, why did you sin? And her response was, the serpent made me do it. Excuses always shift blame or fault towards something external because it can never be me and my sin. That's the root of the problem. Yet what Romans 2.1 foreshadows is a time when every person will stand before the all-knowing judge of the universe and everything will be revealed. It is then that the guilty will be without any excuse because their own sin will be staring them in the face. They will have no one to blame but themselves. 
It's important to note that excuses are always verbal, but when a man stands before the omniscient God who judges based on perfect truth, all mouths may be closed and the world may become accountable to God. Romans 3.19 Men may make excuses to other people all day long, to all the people they want now, but what excuse can a man make that will have any credibility with the Lord himself? Debate is futile because the invariable response will be silence. This serves as a fitting transition into the next verse. That is, the logic of Romans 2.1 tells us that the Jew is condemned based on his lateral associations toward others. But what about his horizontal association with God? Romans 2.2 says, And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. So following the train of thought from the first verse, we know that the judgment of men falls wrongly on those who practice sin, because men judge wrongly. Yet what this verse tells us is that God's judgment falls rightly upon those who sin, because He judges based on perfect divine truth. Commenting on this verse, John Calvin writes, quote, The design of Paul is to shake off from hypocrites their self-complacencies, that they may not think that they can really gain anything, although they be applauded by the world, and though they regard themselves guiltless, for a far different trial awaits them in heaven. End quote. Paul says that we know that the judgment of God falls rightly. Well, how do we know this? How do we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things? And the answer is, because the just judgment of God is always according to the truth. Let me say that again, because this fact about the Lord is the foundation upon which Paul qualifies his accusation against the Jew in chapter 2. We know that the judgment of God falls rightly on those who practice such things because the just judgment of God is always according to the truth. Allow me to make this plain. As the seraphim chant in Isaiah 6-3, God is holy, holier, holiest. God's holiness means more than just He is separate or other. He is in a category all by Himself. As a result, God's holiness cannot tolerate sin and must judge it because He has a judicial hatred for sin. But how does God judge sin? And what is the objective scale by which God judges? It is not arbitrarily defined, but according to His perfect divine truth. God is capital T Truth itself, so what is true emanates from the Lord. See Psalm 119.160, John 14.6, 16.13, and 17.17, and 2 Timothy 2.15. Also, God is unchanging, meaning the truth is unchanging. This means what is right is right and will always be right. What is wrong is wrong and will always be wrong. It does not matter who commits the wrong, because the judgment based on the truth is not partial. If the judgment was partial, it would not be based on the truth. The point of all of this is to drive home the inescapable point that God will and must punish all sin without regard of the person. This punishment not only applies to what a person does, it also applies to why a person does it. 
What does Romans 14.23 say? That whatever is not from faith is sin. Meaning what? That even if you do something that seems right, but do it from a posture of doubting God, then that seemingly good act is sinful. And if it is sinful, then a holy God must punish it. He must punish it rightly according to the truth. This means that anything done without sanctity of heart or with feigned sanctity are absolutely pointless because they can neither justify a man nor impress God. God is therefore the one who, in the truth, exposes the secret motives and feelings of all hypocrites. Now, in the immediate context in Romans 2, Paul is speaking to the non-believing Jew. He is speaking to the self-righteous religious person who not only objects to the gospel, but thinks they are not in need of it. So cognizant of the verse's immediate context, we must also be mindful of the overall spiritual principle that is communicated through this text. The principle is that because the judgment of God is always according to the truth, then sin, which violates God's truth, begets the wrath of God. Why is this principle so very important for the modern Christian to embrace and not to brush over? Because if we sweep the truth of God under the rug, what you get is a very easy believism where the God whom you serve is all love, 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 and grace, 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 but no holiness, no truth, no judgment, and no wrath. What you get is the weaponization of the grace of God against his law. What you have left is no longer the God of the Bible and therein a false God with a false gospel. There is a word that Christians should know. That word is antinomianism. It comes from a Greek word that literally means against the law. Antinomianism is dangerous because it produces a conviction-less Christianity where you repent only once and then do whatever you want the rest of your life. The antinomian says, there is no law but love. God loves me, he saved me, and now I am free to do as I please. The antinomian does not worship the God of the Bible. They actually worship the God of self, but label it biblical Christianity. The antinomian has forgotten or refuses to acknowledge who God is, one who is holy and who judges all sin according to the truth. Yes, for those who are the Lord's, he is slow to anger, Exodus 34, 6. But he does not withhold his anger or punishment from his disobedient children forever, Exodus 34, 7. To prove this point, just ask the exiled peoples of the kingdoms of Israel and Judah. God hates sin. Therefore, if you truly love God, you cannot desire and do what he hates and thinks he actually approves. Does anyone honestly think that the holy God of the universe will bless disobedience, reward transgressions, or incentivize wickedness? So the judgment of God is according to the truth. What does this mean for us now? That if you are saved, of course you are not condemned. Once saved, always saved. But that does not mean you are now free to do as you please. It means that it does not matter if you are a child of God or not. God will punish sin. Why? Because the just judgment of God is always according to the truth. In fact, God may leave alone those who are not his and allow them to reap the consequences of their own sin. 
yet the Lord chastises those whom he loves. See Psalm 94.12, 118.18, Proverbs 3.12, Jeremiah 46.28, and Hebrews 12.6-7. Fairweather preachers in the prosperity gospel will never tell you this. What they will do is continually encourage you to ask the Lord for blessings, but will never preach the word which convicts a man of unrepentant sin. Accordingly, if a man does not actively strive toward holiness, pursue righteousness, and work out his own salvation with fear and trembling, then he ought not to expect blessings. As it says in Genesis 18.25, Shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? Now I realize many listeners may be taken back by the tone and content of what I've just said. You may be taken back because you haven't heard someone explain it like that before. And that's exactly the problem. The modern church has retreated from talking about the holiness, wrath, and truth of God. It has placed the sermon titled, You Cannot Backslide Without Suffering, in the garbage pile. It has left the sermon titled, Your Sin Will Find You Out, in the recycling bin. Sin is cosmic treason in the eyes of a holy God. So, if a man is deluded into taking sin lightly, what results is a man who does not take God, himself, and his sanctification seriously. What results is a feathery, lightweight Christian who is as soft and flabby as the Pillsbury Doughboy. What you get is the modern American church. What you get is a watered-down version of Christianity where faith is on your own terms, obedience is optional, and the pursuit of holiness is left up to those who are in full-time ministry. Now this is beyond the scope of the current text, but one of the reasons why the modern American church is so comatose is because it has forgotten who God is, one who judges according to the truth. As a result, the church has supplanted truth and therein supplanted what God stands for. It is unfortunately all too common for the church to preach and teach antinomianism, that you can have your best life now and sin all you want without consequences, all the while having faith for a blessing. The antinomian church teaches that you can play fast and loose with the Lord's word and expect there to be no repercussions. Again, this is beyond the text, but whether the pervasive antinomianism is conscious or unconscious, it helps to explain one reason why the church today is as lifeless as it is. The final comment that I will make on Romans 2.2 is this. Our text says that we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. So what do we know? We know that God judges rightly because he judges according to the truth. We also know that at the end of time, God will justly judge every person that has ever lived and bring every intent, thought, and act to light. See Revelation 20 verses 11 to 15. What we finally know is that God's just judgment creates a meaningful ethic right now. It creates a meaningful ethic because without God's final justice, right and wrong right now would be meaningless. In order for me to explain what I mean, I will draw your attention to a strange person, the 19th century skeptic by the name of Immanuel Kant. I am certainly not saying that the late Mr. Kant was strange. What I am saying is that he, as an agnostic, made a compelling argument for meaningful ethics based on divine justice. 
on the one hand, if God was not real, then right and wrong do not mean anything because Adolf Hitler and Mother Teresa both go to the same place when they die, back into the ground as meaningless particles. If God is not real, then you could be a very successful tyrant and kill one billion people, but in the end, that would not really mean anything because there is no such thing as merit or blameworthiness. What we would like to label evil is actually just the firing of neurons in the brain or random chemical reactions. In this scenario, there is no God, and therefore there will be no infinite punishment for finite crimes against an infinite God. Now what Kant postulated is that for real justice to happen right now, then certain things must follow. He said that we must live after we die because we must exist in some sense to have a verdict rendered. And to have a verdict that actually means something, the judge must be perfect and impartial. It also goes without saying that the impartiality of the judge means that he cannot be bribed and is beyond corruption. Kant said that the judge must also be all-knowing in order to render a verdict that is right and does not skim the details. Finally, he also postulated that this judge must be omnipotent and therefore have the power to carry out the sentence that he delivers. Indeed, Kant used this overall argument to say that if our ethics are going to be meaningful, then we must affirm the existence of God. But what Kant did, perhaps by accident, is that he described exactly who God is, what the Bible says about God, and validated the reality that we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who commit sin. That is, the God of the Bible is incorruptible, eternal, impartial, omniscient, and omnipotent. The Bible also tells us that we exist after death either near God in paradise or separated from God in hell. The Bible tells us that even for the believer who has passed from condemnation to life, even they will stand before God and be judged perfectly and accurately. Of course, our hope is that based on Christ and His finished work, our gracious Lord has justified us based on the atonement and the imputed righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Our final verse today is Romans 2, chapter 3. That text says, But do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Now, after the apostle establishes that men have no excuse and that God justly judges based on the truth, he essentially levies another accusation against the self-righteous Jew by asking a rhetorical question. In verse 3, Paul is essentially asking, Hey you, the person who is judging others, do you honestly think that you will escape the judgment of the impartial God of the universe? Do you honestly think you can run from He who is inescapable? The obvious answer to this question is, absolutely not. Yet, this is what sin does to the minds of men. They think there is fine print somewhere that will enable them to escape. The reality is, there is no loophole, but there is God's ordained way of salvation through His Son, Jesus. Furthermore, while the logic of this verse makes clear that no one will escape the judgment of God, they may certainly escape the judgment of men. Certainly, this may actually be the preferable route by which to deal with religious hypocrisy. 
to leave them alone and let them sort it out with their maker. There is no darkness that God's light will not expose. As a result, while even those who are godless are compelled from time to time to condemn evil, then how much more of a right does God have to judge sin? If a fallen creature feels emboldened to judge, then how much more of a right does the sinless creator have? As it was in the time of Noah, and as it was in the time of John the Baptist, so it is now. Men think they will escape the judgment of God. This is what a depraved mind does. It concocts arguments to get the self off the hook. But what the Word of God repeatedly reveals is a hook that a man is on and calls men everywhere to repent. John MacArthur says it perfectly in his New Testament commentary on Romans. He writes, quote, Human nature trades on God's grace, believing that everything will work out all right in the end because God is too good and merciful to send anyone to hell. End quote. The final clause of Romans 2.3 talks about escaping the judgment of God. So I ask the listening audience the following question. Do we not realize that even God did not escape the judgment of God? For that is what the atonement on the cross was, that God must punish sin, and in order for him to be able to justly forgive me, either I suffer from my own sin or a substitute does. The cross, therefore, had less to do with me than it did with the holy God who cannot violate his own justice to justify a sinner. This is why the Son had to come and die on a cross to endure the wrath of God. The crucifixion of Jesus Christ was not the supplanting of God's justice, but rather the fullest expression of it. As we close this episode and look ahead to the following verses, let us ponder another question. What of God's love, or grace, or patience, or long-suffering? We have talked at length about God's truth and justice, but what about the goodness of God? How can a good God condemn anyone with His justice? I hope that based on everything we talked about today, the answer is clear. But for those who are not clear, here is the beginning of an answer. If God did not punish sin, he would not be good. If God looked at sin and turned a blind eye to wickedness, he would be unjust and therefore not good at all. If God did that, he would not be God. If God did that, then that little g-god would not be the god of the Bible, although it is the god that people in modernity would like to serve. For example, many godless people love to say, God is love, and they are right, God is love, but he is also holy, and one of his attributes never contradicts the other of his attributes. This means that the God who is love is also the one who inescapably judges according to the truth. Men cannot weaponize God's goodness and love against his righteousness and justice. Yet, because God is good, he does not necessarily mete out justice immediately. That is, he gives people space and time to repent and turn to Christ in faith. God is long-suffering, which is not an attribute to be taken for granted, meaning a man cannot fall back on God's goodness only to do that which is bad. As we shall see in the next lesson, to say God is good, but then to continue in sin and expect no consequences is to actually admit that God is not good and to spit in his face.
We will pick up next time in Romans 2.4, where we will learn about the goodness, kindness, the tolerance, and the patience of the Almighty God. Thank you for listening. For more valuable resources, including a bookstore and online Bible study, visit wcsk.org.